Good morning, SNWTUL New Orleans News and Views. It is Monday, May 4th, 10 a.m. I'm DJ Mimi. Thanks for tuning in. We just heard Democracy Now!'s daily episode. Next, we'll get into Counterspin. This week, it's Jim Nakarekas on coronavirus false choices and Peter May Barduk on pharmaceutical price gouging. After that, we'll hear the most recent episode of Louisiana Budget Project's podcast, Did You Know? This episode is on voting in a pandemic. Here we go. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, CDC data suggests that U.S. deaths from the coronavirus are far higher than reported, according to a recent New York Times story. Upending the notion that the virus is only killing people who would have died from other causes anyway, the new data shows coronavirus has brought, quote, a pattern of deaths unlike anything seen in recent years, close quote. The problem is that data-driven story has to compete with others in the paper and elsewhere that suggest that we're moving quite smartly toward reopening the economy, and pushing to make that happen soon is an equally legitimate position to hold. Corporate media are constitutionally committed to leaving unchallenged the notion that our choice is between sending folks back to workplaces and public spaces that might be unsafe and letting them stay home and give up paychecks and health insurance. That worldview undercuts their ability to bring us the basic information we need. We'll get an update on pandemic coverage from Jim Narikis, editor of FAIR.org. Also on the show, author Gerald Posner told The Intercept last month, pharmaceutical companies view COVID-19 as a once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity. And it isn't a matter of a handful of outlier, especially greedy companies. This is the system. But as real as drug companies' imperative to take advantage of people being sick and scared so they can make a bigger profit is the growing recognition that this is unacceptable pandemic or no pandemic. Peter May Barduk, director of Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicines program, joins us to talk about that piece of the problem. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. There was a story in the April 29th New York Times about how even as coronavirus cases in the U.S. have surpassed one million and more people have died than in the Vietnam War, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner are pushing the line that the White House response is a great success story. And we're on the other side of the medical aspect of this. It's the sort of elite media reporting that imagines it's holding Trump and his cronies up to derision, with withering terms like revisionist history and at odds with the reality on the ground. Mr. Trump has demonstrated a striking tendency to try to frame the political narrative on his own terms, even when at variance with the facts, says the Times, as it provides a platform for him to do just that. 
There is some great data reporting, of course, but corporate media's overweening focus on competing narratives or spin colors and clouds their own relationship to the facts. Dangerous at all times, it's especially reckless in a time of still-evolving public health crisis. Joining us again to talk about what we know about the reality on the ground of COVID-19 is Jim Narikas, editor of FAIR.org. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. Thanks for having me back. Well, I say to talk about what we know about the pandemic, so much coverage seems to be reflected through a lens of what the speaker wants or assumes. Since the economy has to reopen soon, how do we do that? You almost have to force yourself to pull back and just look at actual information. Who's getting sick, where, who is dying, and so on. But I know that you've been concerned that reporters aren't being tenacious enough on what you might think would be question one to stop a virus, you know, the news we could most use, namely, how are people catching it? Yeah, I I do think that is an incredibly important story that is not really being covered. The fight against the coronavirus involves certainly healthcare workers trying to cure the sick, but really the bigger terrain that this is being combated on is keeping people from getting infected. And we have to do that ourselves. No one is keeping us from, from being infected except our own actions. So we, we need to know what works to keep us safe and what is putting us at risk. And I don't think that media are really giving us the information that we need to know what those risks are. Yeah, they're talking about sort of cultural battles between people wearing masks and people not wearing masks, but it's sort of apart from a conversation of do we have evidence that that works? Because, of course, if you know how people are catching it, you'll also know how people maybe are not likely to catch it, and and we can shape our actions around that. And it does seem like the kind of thing that reporters can do to talk to people who are sick, not all of whom are gravely ill, and ask them what they were doing, you know, what what their their lifestyles choices were under the lockdown. Uh, I have seen some good reporting on sort of case studies that have been done mostly before the lockdown that show that that there can be, you know, a great number of cases spread from a single social event where people are in, in a room together and give the coronavirus to each other. But I have not seen that kind of reporting done to talk about where the the new infections keep coming from now that most people are are sheltering in place. The way that media refer to something in what we call the boilerplate, the sort of thumbnail description they give of an event or a phenomenon, it really reflects, uh, it might be inserted into lots of different stories, but it reflects kind of their essential message about this situation. And with that in mind, I know that you took issue with the way AP, very influential wire service, was kind of describing the coronavirus. What was the problem there and has it changed? They seem to be using the same boilerplate. There's this paragraph that they stick into just about every article that they write about the coronavirus. And it seems to reflect a fear that people are too worried about the coronavirus. It stresses that this is mostly a problem for people who are old or have health problems um, and concludes the vast majority of people recover. Now, the, most, the vast majority of people recover from, from cholera. You know, it doesn't mean it's not a deadly disease. I think that this is really sending a message, especially to young people, that this is not something that you need to take seriously. It's not something that that is going to to affect you. So why worry about it? 
Yeah, and they talk about, well, it's just with people who have underlying health conditions, but then when you parse that out, that turns out to be a large, very large number of people. Yeah, a, a huge number of people are uh, considered overweight, uh, have high blood pressure, um, and may not be aware of it. Um, it, it works out to be about half the population have the kind of underlying health issues that they say are dangerous. Well, in this Time story that I saw yesterday, Jared Kushner says, we're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think that we've achieved all the different milestones that are needed. You know, he's a humanoid, and the piece is trying to make clear that these claims are out of step with reality, you know, but media themselves have talked about a peak, you know, and us being on the other side of some, you know, having turned some kind of corner or other countries having done that. And they do it with what looks like data and charts and everything. What's troubling you there? There is this, uh, I think, very comforting idea that as quickly as the coronavirus arrived, it will go away. There are these charts that have been widely circulated uh, from a, an outfit at the University of Washington that show very neat peaks where the infections go up and then they come right back down again. And when you look at the math behind these forecasts, you find that the assumptions that they use require that the disease go away as fast as it, it arrived. And in fact, when they correct their data for a steeper increase in infections, they have to correct on the other side and have the disease going away just as fast. When you look at the real world and you look at the, the course of infections uh, in countries that have had the coronavirus for longer, you do not see a sharp peak with the infections coming down. I think the coronavirus outbreaks can linger for a long time with a, a long period of ongoing death at relatively the same rate. And that seems to be a more realistic view of what the end game is going to be here. Well, everyone, of course, wants to see hopeful news, and there is hopeful news out there. We just want it to be based in reality, you know, and not in sort of magical thinking. But you took issue with a New York Times piece the other day uh, out of Rhode Island. What was that about? Well, the, the point of the of the article was that Rhode Island has done a lot of testing, and it was really trying to assert that Rhode Island only looks like it has a, a bad outbreak of coronavirus because... It, they test so much, and so and so they're they're more aware of it. But really, when you look at deaths from coronavirus, which is not subject to bias from doing a lot of testing, they have like the seventh worst case in the nation. They really have been hard hit. And while they have, to their credit, ramped up testing, they did that like two weeks ago. Since they've been at this high level of testing, they continue to have new cases rising. And that's not because of they're testing a lot is because they actually have an ongoing infection that is serious. And the article was framed as the fact that they're testing so much will make it easier for them to reopen their economy. And I, I think that is underlying a lot of this wishful reporting is that there's a, a perceived need to get this over with so we can get back to work. And so you look for whatever hopeful signs you can point to that say that it's okay to go back to having economic activity, even though the virus is still out there. And in most places uh, where they're talking about reopening, there, there's far more cases now than there were when 
the economy was shut down in the first place. Yeah, which makes it hard to follow. But um, let me just ask you, I know you just wrote something about Sweden, which is another place folks were first thought was a good model, then thought mm, that wasn't such a good model. What What's that about now? Yes, the New York Times, again, had a story talking about the apparent success in Sweden, where they have not had a lockdown and tried to get by with social distancing and banning gatherings over 50 people, but have not told people to stay home. And a lot of people point to Sweden and say, ah, see, look, Sweden. They're being more sane about yeah, it. Yeah, and they're, they're doing a great job. Uh, and the New York Times claimed that they have been as successful as most countries in the world at controlling the virus. And it's just not true. Per capita, in terms of deaths, they have the 10th worst outbreak in the world. Uh, that's not that's not a success. They have like roughly a third per capita more deaths than the United States. And I don't think many people would say that the United States is a role model for dealing with the coronavirus, uh, but Sweden has, has done worse. When you compare it to their neighbors, who are similar countries in terms of their social structure and population density, which I think is an important factor here, Norway and Finland have had one-sixth the number of deaths per capita as Sweden. So it, it's not clear to me why we're not running stories about Finland's apparent success at dealing with the coronavirus rather than, than looking at Sweden. Again, it's hard not to see what's pointed to as a solution being shaped so much by what people want to see as the solution and want to happen. Well, finally, you understand that people don't think we can just stay in lockdown and just wait and just wait for a vaccine and maybe that'll be a year or maybe that'll be two years. But it makes it sound as though that's all we can do. What do you just think about that framing as we go forward in terms of we've exhausted our options and now we just sit and wait? You do see a lot of coverage that assumes that the two choices are to sit in our homes and have people basically go bankrupt as they can't work or else to force them back into the workplace and have them take their chances with the coronavirus. And the idea that you could support people through this crisis, give people the resources they need, delay obligations like rent and debt repayment and, and so forth, that these things can be put off while we deal with the crisis, just is not really being seriously considered as, as an option. The idea that the landlord must get paid seems to be a sacred cow that, that really can't be trifled with. We've been speaking with Jim Narikas. He's the editor of FAIR.org. Thanks, Jim Narikas, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me back. The CEO of Gilead Sciences says he's humbled their drug, Remdesivir, shows promise of working against COVID-19. That rings rather differently than mere weeks ago when the company applied for and received so-called orphan drug status for remdesivir, granting them a seven-year monopoly under a clause meant to encourage production of drugs few were interested in making. Gilead had that status rescinded after elevated public outrage, presumably discovering this humility somewhere along the way. The behavior of drug companies in this pandemic is reminder that while the virus may be novel, healthcare is a crisis all the time in this country, as profit-driven companies behave like profit-driven companies in a nation where many people can't afford to both buy their medicine and pay their rent. So not allowing potential treatment for COVID-19 to be monopolized for years by Gilead is a start, 
But if that's where we end up, we'll still be in trouble. Here to talk about Big Pharma in the time of the coronavirus is Peter Maybarduk. He's director of Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicines program. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Peter Maybarduk. It's great to be with you. Well, what happened with Gilead and Remdesivir and their pushing for so-called orphan status for a drug that was developed with some public spending, by the way, it just seems emblematic of the perverse incentives and system failure, regulatory system failure we have with regard to pharmaceuticals. What was set to happen there until groups like Public Citizen stepped in and shouted it down, essentially? Gilead would have earned itself a windfall, uh, an extra two years of monopoly protection over what would have been expected by gaming the system. And as you've said, claiming that a potential treatment for this world-changing pandemic uh, was actually rare in some fashion. They put in the FDA application while there were still fewer than 200,000 cases, I believe, is the required number. That number was slated to change in a matter of days, reported cases uh, in the United States. So they got it in just under the wire as if it were a rare disease rather than a a rapidly uh, expanding pandemic. So Gilead would have been able to exclude generic competition for longer and, and count on that boost and potentially higher prices and uh, instead had to back off. Well, you had a comment I saw saying that having to give up orphan status was a good first step for Gilead. What else do you think that they should be doing? Well, Gilead should be focused on committing its patents and know-how to the public domain to help the world ramp up production of ramdesivir should it prove safe and effective. It's a tremendous problem that we operate under a system of monopoly drug development. It's, it's always a problem as regards price. But in the midst of this pandemic, price is, in a sense, almost the least of our concerns. It's a concern. It's, it's real. It's going to be a problem. But greater problems involve getting up to scale for supply so that everyone who needs treatment uh, can get it. No corporation has manufacturing capacity sufficient to treat the world. It will be an even greater problem as regards uh, potential vaccines. So we really need companies cooperating with other companies and with governments and allowing any qualified manufacturer to produce these treatments. Manufacturing capacity is one part. The other part is just we need all the information, all the science, all the know-how, all the technology in the public domain so that we can build on it and develop better treatments, better tools, so that someone could make a better remdesivir or could draw on the lessons of the science for another product or combine it with another product in some fashion and keep improving the medical response. All that gets fragmented, the response limited, if companies are monopolizing these treatments and saying we're going to enforce our patent and so on. Well, if I could build on that to get your thoughts on another place where the U.S can seem out of touch, besides just the whole idea that healthcare and profit-making don't mix, is the idea of international cooperation. How badly has U.S. isolationism or exceptionalism impacted the coronavirus response? Or to say it differently, how might such international cooperation move us forward here? We're very concerned about the Trump administration's maneuvers to potentially pull U.S. funding 
from the World Health Organization, generally denigrating international cooperation and their allegations that the Trump administration tried to purchase a, a German vaccine manufacturing company, have them move to the United States. The administration has put restrictions uh, on 3M's ability to export masks to Mexico. We actually need the integrity of the supply chain preserved. We need global leadership and coordination right now because no company has sufficient capacity to tend to global need, nor does any given country. And the nature of a pandemic and, and this pandemic too, which seems to come with dangers of reinfection, the disease courses through one part of the world and comes back. And so if one country fails to control the pandemic, other countries are going to pay a price. And so we all need to be working together on that. It applies not just to the United States, but it's in the United States' interest that we're working with other countries to have the most robust response possible to make sure healthcare workers are getting what they need, to make sure the disease is getting tamped down so it doesn't come back worse and harder here, let alone the economic and security consequences of the pandemic really ravaging vulnerable parts of the world, something that the United States and all countries may have to steward for a very long time to come. So nationalism is a pretty dangerous idea to be flirting with right now. And there are tremendous positive alternatives if we decide to really go in on this together. We can pool the world's science and technology to accelerate the development of better medical tools to ensure that there is ample manufacturing capacity worldwide for personal protective equipment for masks and ventilators, but also for medicines and vaccines, not even just those related to coronavirus per se, but medicines that are going into shortage. The cost of moving medicines around the world is increasing. Supply chains are endangered. We have to sort of redouble our efforts to make sure the supply chains are working. If we work on that together globally, we can make it happen. There's a proposal for the World Health Organization to shepherd an open technology platform where companies like Gilead and entities like the U.S. government that invest quite a bit of taxpayer dollars in technology would put all their know-how and tech together so that qualified manufacturers the world over could say, I want to use that. I've got an idea for how I can build on that to make something better. Or we have manufacturing capacity in our part of the world to produce that technology there as well to make sure there's adequate supply in our part of the world. WHO can lead in that but it may need U.S. support to do so. And we're obviously having a hard time getting there under President Trump. Yeah, there is another vision, yet another area where there is another vision that is sometimes obscured uh, from us, including by by U.S. media. Well, let me just ask you, beyond Gilead and Rendezvous, I know that Public Citizen has issued a call to big pharmaceutical companies about not price gouging in a pandemic. And it's not just about, as you've just sort of indicated, it's not just about COVID-19 related drugs. It's about really all drugs as well. That's right. It's standard practice for pharmaceutical companies across their portfolios to increase the price of old drugs on average of 10% per year. It's an outrageous practice when you think about it. These aren't the new drugs, these price increases aren't contributing anything to innovation, but they do contribute to treatment rationing and people's suffering. It is literally just a practice that what's become standard business in the pharmaceutical industry. You raise your prices every year. Prices don't go down over time. They go up, and the monopoly environment obviously helps facilitate that. So 
we think the bare minimum that the world should be expecting of the pharmaceutical industry in the midst of this pandemic is not to make the problem worse. Well, yeah, you might say almost that any price raised is gouging. Gouging sounds like some kind of extreme term, but we're already at a moment where people are going to have less money. Some are going to have no job. So a regular, for the industry, a regular old price hike on a drug can really mean a huge difference in someone's life, yeah? That's right. Financial hardship and emotional hardship may get worse as people's sense of isolation increases. And, of course, we're suffering uh, historic rates of job loss uh, in the United States. Right now, many people are getting by without insurance. Now, even before the pandemic, we had a very serious problem of treatment rationing. Close to one in three people reportedly rationing their own access to medicine at some point due to its cost. Um, insulin rationing has resulted in a number of people's deaths in the United States. Uh, and, of course, we have a, a crisis of deaths of despair, of an overdose crisis in the United States. Now, we need to make sure that everyone can afford their insulin. We need to make sure that cities can afford naloxone and other overdose antidotes in ample supply. Again, so everybody can access them. That is harder if prices are going up while ability to pay is going down. So it's just a minimum contribution to not price gouge during a pandemic. Well, at the end of this write-up recently in which Gilead's CEO said that they're very humbled and it seemed like a real change of tune from just a few weeks ago, the, the CEO makes these statements about building a global consortium of pharmaceutical and chemical manufacturers to expand global capacity and production and countries working together and collaborative efforts. So it sounds like they're at least saying they're going to do some of the things that folks would be calling on them to do. So is that a change of tune for them, or, or what did we maybe miss on the original go-round on that story? There is some recognition in the pharmaceutical industry that these are not ordinary times and that they need to strike a different tone. There are, of course, also areas where uh, scaling up supply matches business interests. There are ways in which Gilead has been a little out ahead of some other companies in its announcements that it, it in its efforts in general to work with suppliers in other parts of the world. So while we were outraged by the apparent cynicism of the orphan drug exclusivity maneuver, it's not generally the case that we're trying to single out Gilead here. There's a tremendous problem with the business model and both corporate malfeasance and just too much public acceptance of a really terrible business model. What Gilead has announced here, their voluntary mechanisms are not enough to do what we really need to do as a matter of public health in the pandemic. They're not enough because it may not be enough supply. It won't liberate the science the way that we want. But also, we don't have any checks and balances. It's just Gilead telling us in still rather vague terms what it hopes to do. We have to actually be in a position to mandate what must be done because people's every all of our health is really at stake from if we don't respond quickly enough. So we shouldn't just take like sort of commitments to sort of very very loose ideas and, and Gilead saying that they're going to take care of it. We actually have to step in and insist and in, ensure there could be a pretty big difference between Gilead working with a few manufacturers that it has chosen on its terms and uh, the U.S. government saying we are going to ensure that all qualified manufacturers can make it. That could be a big difference of scale. That could be a big difference of price. That could be a big difference in access to the know-how. Uh, so we really need to insist. 
We've been speaking with Peter May Barduk, Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program. Find their work online at citizen.org. Peter May Barduk, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.